I'm just going to, um, we've only got a short passage today. I'm just going to read it out again for us. If you've got your Bibles open, uh, it's Acts chapter 2, just a few verses, 42 to 47, and then I'll pray. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you indeed are holy. There is no one like you. There is none besides you. And we pray, please, as we turn to your word, please would you open up our eyes in wonder at the Lord Jesus and his plans and purposes for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I lived in London, on occasion, I would go and watch Saracens play rugby. Saracens, a big rugby club um, in London. It was at Alliance Park. And if you've ever been or you've ever seen it on the telly, one of the first things that you notice, or at least I noticed, about the place is their values. They put them everywhere. So here are their values. Honesty, discipline, work rate, humility. Now, if you know anything about rugby, we can have a conversation afterwards as to whether you think those, those uh, values actually reflect the club. But they are everywhere on the banners outside the turnstiles, honesty, discipline, work rate, humility. Across the top of the stand in the stadium, honesty, discipline, work rate, humility. Even on the, the inside of their collars, on their shirts, honesty, discipline, work rate, humility. At words which describe their priorities. Words which describe what they stand for, or at least what they want to stand for. And it's not just Saracens who do that. Um, all sorts of organizations um, have words and values that they seek to stand on. You go onto a school website or a charity website, you'll see their values. There might be a page devoted to it. Excellence, learning, inclusion, respect, achievement, and so on. Well, what about the church? What should be our values and priorities? What should we stand for and want to stand for? What should we aspire to be like? Well, I think these uh, few verses at the end of Acts chapter 2 give us an answer as they give us a, a snapshot of the church in the early days um, after Pentecost, a picture of the values that we too should aim for and pray towards. Uh, this little uh, paragraph at the end of chapter 2 comes after the events of the day of Pentecost. Remember the day of Pentecost? Uh, the Holy Spirit comes and enables the believers to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. And last time we were in Acts, we heard Peter address the crowd and tell them about who Jesus is, that he is Lord and Messiah, 
and that they must turn and trust in him to be forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now Luke uh, tells us about the effects of the day of the Pentecost. What happened after that? And a snapshot of the church, which was filled with the Spirit, the Spirit-filled church. So what was life like among that community? What marked out this Spirit-filled church? Well, let me try and boil this down in, with, with, in, into just five words. Don't worry, it's not a five-point sermon, it's five words, um, slightly shorter than normal. What marked out this church? Well, firstly, this was a learning church. So verse 42, if you've got to have a look down at it um, in front of you. Uh, verse 42 is a list of the things that this church was uh, devoted to, which it prioritized. And number one on that list, the very first thing that they prioritize, the apostles' teaching. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, remember who the apostles were. They were Jesus' appointed teachers. They had been with Jesus right throughout his life, seeing his miracles, his, his death and resurrection and ascension. Um, Jesus had taught and trained them. In Luke's gospel, we read that Jesus opened up the scriptures to them, showing them how all of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, pointed forward to him. He had taught them and trained them and had sent them out to bear witness about him. So the apostles, they, these were Jesus' qualified teachers. And this is confirmed by the miracles that God was doing through them. And so these, this, this spirit-filled church devoted themselves to learning from these apostles. The late John Stott put it this way, I think it's very helpful. He said, one might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day, the day of Pentecost. Its, its teachers were the apostles, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. This was a learning church. So these believers, um, they didn't think to themselves, um, we're now saved, uh, we know about Jesus, uh, we know the truth, We've done all our learning, we can close the book, and now our responsibility is simply to share with others what we already know. They were saved. They did know about Jesus. But they were not done with learning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were hungry for more. They were inquisitive. They were curious, always asking questions, always listening to the apostles teach, always learning. You know, I was just remembering uh, this morning um, about a young lad who became a believer. Um, and he said, as he, thought, as he thought about the Bible, as he was kind of a few months old as a believer, he said, I just want to eat the Bible. I just want to eat the Bible. He was hungry to learn you know, it's an important question to ask of any church. How is the teaching? How is the, how is the preaching? Is it biblical? Is it clear? Is it faithful? It, that is a really important uh, question as we think about our church too, home groups and Bible class and Sunday mornings. That's a key question. An equally important question 
is how is the learning at our church? Because, of course, as any teacher will tell you, there are two sides in the learning process. There is the teacher and there is the learner. How is the learning? How good as a church are we at learning? How is our lifelong learning mindset? Do we prayerfully prepare to listen to God's word, to the apostles' teaching in God's word? in advance of home group on a Sunday morning? Uh, do we talk about what we've been learning around the dinner table? Uh, do we discuss uh, what we've heard on a Tuesday night? Do we pray it in the next day? Do we live out the teaching of God's word? Or is it just something that we hear in the moment and then leave behind? I know that many here really are lifelong uh, gospel learners, always reading Christian books, always listening, always reflecting on some part of Scripture. What a healthy sign. Well, the church in Jerusalem was a learning church devoted to the apostles' teaching and a model, an example to us in that. Secondly, this church was a worshiping church. Have a look down at verses 42 and 43. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. We'll think about that in just a moment. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Then on to verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. So this was a worshiping church. They remembered God's rescue often as they uh, uh, broke bread together. Uh, they were in awe of God, blown away by the miracles that God was doing. They praised God with glad and sincere hearts. This was a worshiping church. This is a picture um, of Sunday assembly. Uh, Sunday assembly meets on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Um, in central London, not far from uh, where I used to go to church. Um, the congregation stands to sing. Someone speaks from the front. Uh, people listen, and at the end, they have tea and cake together. And you would be forgiven for mistaking this for a church, because it looks an awful lot like a church. But it's not, because there's no worship of God um, a Sunday assembly was started by two comedians. They wanted to do something that was like church, but completely secular. And so they sing, they, they sing pop songs, and they listen to poetry, and they listen to someone speak about uh, science or something like this, and they seek to create community. Really good things in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with those things at all. But it's just a shame, isn't it? There's no worship of God. Well, not this spirit-filled church in Jerusalem. God was very much at its center. He was the one who had brought them all together. He was their reason for gathering. They remembered his rescue. They prayed to him. They were in awe of him, and they praised him. The church was centered on the worship of God. And that should cause us, I think, to reflect on our own practices and on our own motives. Uh, to what extent is the worship of God your reason for doing church and being part of church? 
To what extent do you come on a Sunday morning in order to meet with God and to praise God and to pray to God and to hear from God? Or to put it another way, um, if you were visiting London and on a Sunday morning you went along to Sunday assembly, mistaking it for a real church, and you came in and you sat down and it began, how dissatisfied would you be that there was no worship of God? How important is God and the worship of God to us as a church? Well, this early church shows us that it should be absolutely central in our practice and in our motives. So this is a learning church, a worshiping church. Thirdly, it was a generous church. Have a look at verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. You see, this church in Jerusalem was radically generous. Now, when we come across verses like this, we just got to say a few extra things to explain. Because, of course, we've got to realize that the Bible is not against owning stuff. Uh, in a few chapters' time, Peter is going to make that really clear to Ananias and Sapphira. He's going to say to them, uh, didn't this field uh, belong to you before it was sold? Yes, it did. It was their field. It belonged to them. And he asks them, and then after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Wasn't it your money to do what you wanted with? Answer, yes, it was. You see, the Bible teaches us that your house is your house. It's not mine, it's yours. So I can't say to you, um, you, you ought to share your stuff with me because it's not really yours, it's ours. We're part of the church together. No, the Bible recognizes personal ownership. Um, nor is there any expectation here that each member must sell up and contribute. Uh, the very fact that some that they were told that they broke bread in their homes means that some still owned homes. And they're not criticized for that. There's an implicit commendation. Well done, them, for opening up your homes. No one was making these church members sell and contribute and give. No, this was a glad and voluntary generosity. I remember chatting with an old neighbor um, who, this was back in England, and he just couldn't get his head around how our church could survive financially. Um, he says, you employ staff, um, you own and maintain a building, you contribute to other causes outside of your church, but you don't rattle the tin every Sunday, you don't pass around a plate, you don't exact a membership fee. How does it work? And it was lovely to be able to say that actually people choose voluntarily to contribute to the work and do so anonymously and very, very generously. And it's the same here. But note, um, as we go back to the church in Jerusalem, their generosity, it wasn't just reflected in their yearly budget or in the big spreadsheet. 
it was also obvious from their interactions. I imagine that if we were to eavesdrop into their conversations over coffee, it would have been full of things like, come on over for lunch, and can I give you a lift, and do you need anything from the shop, and looking out for each other's needs. I think of someone in the church here. I don't want to embarrass them by this. I don't want you to guess who it is. I don't think you will be able to. But anytime I see them, they have a new uh, Christian book for me. Not given to me uh, with a subtext, you really ought to be reading this because the church is going in a bad direction and you really need... A book from my favorite author, just to bless, not to manipulate, just to bless. And I know I'm not the only person this person does this for. That's just generosity. That's wonderful, like this early church. And just one example of many here of generous-hearted, generous-spirited church life. So here we have an inspiring picture of generosity to encourage us to keep being generous, to keep giving, to keep thinking of others, to keep opening our homes. This is a generous church. Fourthly, four out of five, this was a together church. Um, apart from words like the and 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 it in this paragraph, together is the most common word in this little paragraph. Verse 44, all the believers were together. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You get the same idea, different language in, in verse 42. They, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Together, 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 fellowship. So you see, they spent time together. They were gospel teammates together. They served together. They showed hospitality to one another, both formally as they gathered for their scheduled meetings in the temple courts and informally in their homes. They were together. But note, it is together, not similar. Those ideas are kind of similar, but they're not quite the same. This group was together, not similar. See, in most groupings, there is a similarity You've got a, a group of blokes who, who, who enjoy football or a group of kids who like comics. Or you've got a group of locals whose families have been in the place for years and years and years. You've got a group of blow-ins who all unite around the fact that they're new. You've got a group of Northern Irish or you've got a group of French over here or a group of Spanish over here. We, that is what we tend to do, isn't it? Gravitate towards those who are like us. It's very natural You know, one thing I, I noticed, and I'm not, uh, one thing I noticed about this Sunday assembly, this, this, this website, and I really, um, I know I've mentioned it twice now, I'm not taking a pop at this, this, this group in London. They're seeking to do something that, that's good, and there's no gain to us at just taking a pop and swiping at this grouping. I, I mention it to, to get us to reflect on our own life as a church. Just have a look again at this picture. I wonder, do you notice anything about this picture? I'm going to tell you what I notice. Um, I notice that with two exceptions, it's all adults. Or maybe they've got a crash out the back. I don't know. 
I also notice that with just two exceptions, everyone's face is white. This is central London, the most diverse place on the planet, but it's not attracting a diverse crowd. And really, that's not a surprise, because if you take God out of the picture, you lose the person who has got the power to bring diverse people together. Well, not the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was different. It was a group of different people, of different ages and different backgrounds. We're told in chapter 2, verse 5, that the Pentecost cried, which becomes the church, it was made up from Jews from every nation under heaven, is what Luke says. And this is before the church then expands and Gentiles become included too. Different people whom God had brought together. And I think that's really helpful for us to consider as we think about fellowship and togetherness. We're not to, when we think about fellowship and togetherness, we're not to think it's about spending more time with people who are, who are like me. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not really true fellowship, gospel fellowship, as we see demonstrated here. We're to think spending time and, and serving together uh, with people who are different to me, and the same as me, who share my faith. That is true gospel togetherness. It marked out this church um, in the first century. So it was a together church. Finally, it was a growing church. And just because these believers in this community were together doesn't mean that they were closed and secretive and hostile to those from outside, self-absorbed. No, they were outward-looking. You see that in verse 47. How they praised God and were enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So their fellowship wasn't huddled and hostile. It was outward-facing, porous, and welcoming these believers, um, they enjoyed the favor of the people. No, no doubt they served their community. Um, literally, that verse reads, they were gracious towards all the people, speaking the gospel, helping out, living among them, inviting them along. And the result was that their neighbors knew them and liked them and trusted them, thought well of them. That's not always going to be the case. And they joined them submitting to the Lord Jesus as King and Savior. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here is the Spirit-filled church, this example to us, a learning church, a worshiping church, a generous church, a together church, and a growing church. Two quick thoughts as we close on how, on how we as a church might grow in these areas. And firstly, I think uh, we need each to play our part. Uh, we each need to play our part. You see, when you think about Antrim Baptist Church, excuse me, which 
pronoun do you use? A pronoun is I, you, he, she, it, we, you, they. Which pronoun do you use when you speak or think about Antrim Baptist Church? Um, often, our natural response is to use it. It, the church. The church needs to grow in this area. The church is strong at this. The church is not so strong at that. Or you, um, you know, the church, you lot, not me, but you lot. Um, but of course, the church is not it. It is not you. Um, as long as we think of Antrim Baptist Church as you or it, we'll, we'll, we'll not really grow in these areas. But when we think about we, because of course, we are the church together, where there's a weakness, we are weak. Where there's a strength, we are strong. It's we. And that means that where we feel that, that, that um, we as a church are uh, weak in an area or not very together or not very outward facing or something like that, the first port of call, of course, is to self-reflect because we are part of the church. How am I doing in that area? Because, of course, when everyone, when all of us think like that, that's when we really begin to grow. So we each need to play our part. And I think finally, we, just, we, we need to take our lead here from God. Because this early church really was only really reflecting its God. A God who is full of knowledge. A God who is deeply generous a God who is together, diverse, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one God, different and yet united, full of knowledge, deeply generous, a God who is together, a God who is outward looking. Yeah, you know, the Bible speaks about God as being a blessed God, a happy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, serving, loving, glorifying one another. And yet, a God who goes to extreme lengths to invite and welcome in and make possible salvation for those outside the Godhead, for us, that we too might join and share in his fellowship. Well, as a church, may we become more and more like the God whom we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize the challenge of a paragraph like this. And we pray, please, we thank you for the ways in which you have grown and been at work among us. For the ways in which we, hum we, we, we uh, reflect your character. We recognize that that is not from us. That is from your work among us. And we pray, please, would you help us? Would you fill us with your spirit that more and more we may reflect you, our great and wonderful God, and that through us you might reach this time, this country, and beyond for the gospel. So help us and be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
we're going to pray as we sing a prayer that God would renew us and help us as we seek to be the church that he wants us to be.